Mailbag! Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks to Health IQ for supporting the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz and potentially save up to 41% on premiums. And thanks to Quip for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Join over 3 million healthy mouths and get Quip, the electric toothbrush, today, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash fool right now, you'll get your first refill free. GetQuipQUIP.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. Thanks for joining me. If you're in the United States of America, it is Thanksgiving week. If you're hearing this on Wednesday, when we publish every Wednesday, 4 p.m. Eastern or so, that means tomorrow is Thanksgiving. I know some of you wait to listen to maybe the weekend. In that case, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. It's a special week every year in the USA around Thanksgiving. And there are a lot of things to give thanks for. The stock market has been, once again, pretty good this year. Uh, it came out of a really ugly ending to 2018. That's my recollection, anyway. So it's been nice, and I give thanks for another winning market year. And if you're looking for my market prediction for next year, I predict the market is going up. Now, if you're a longtime listener, I believe you know why I say that, and that I say that with a little bit of a smile on my face. Turns out I'm right two years out of three with my market predictions, which puts me well in the upper decile of all stock market predictors, simply by saying, I think it'll go up. Anyway, it has gone up so far in 2019 anyway, and I give thanks for that. I also give thanks for you, my listener. It is a delight to be able to have your attention, for you to suffer fools gladly once a week, once a month, whenever you do check in with this or any of our Motley Fool podcasts. Thank you. It means a lot. This is the final Wednesday of the month, and therefore, as I said pretty briefly, pretty concisely for my cold open this week, it's the mailbag. That's right. Your questions, your thoughts, our best shot at answers. As usual, I have a cavalcade of guest stars that will be coming through over the course of our time together this week. And I've got nine mailbag items queued up, so given that full slate, we should get started pronto. So, mailbag item number one. Just one of those notes I love to lead off a good mailbag with, just inspirational. I always love hearing things from other people's viewpoints, especially when they're on the other side of the world, Marcus Rose. Hi, David. My name is Marcus Rose, and I'm a 22-year-old currently serving in the Royal Australian Air Force. And I've been investing for almost two years now, ever since I found The Motley Fool. I've gone all in on saving as much money as I can and investing in my favorite businesses, both here in Australia and in the U.S. For over the last year and a half, I have admired many aspects of The Motley Fool. It's culture, services, podcasts, people, and yourself from a distance. I am an avid listener of Motley Fool Money, Market Foolery, Industry Focus, and of course, Rule Breaker Investing. The most impressive thing that comes across in these podcasts, despite the unbelievable amount of knowledge bombs, that's in quotes, that are dropped, and I guess coming from an Air Force man that has extra meaning, in addition to the unbelievable amount of knowledge bombs dropped, is how every single person that features seems to be so comfortable and genuine. 
I don't think that this would be possible without the progressive, inclusive culture and equal stakeholder orientation that you bring to life. So, for that, kudos. Well, thank you, Marcus. That's really kind. You know, speaking on behalf of all of us here at Full HQ, that's the only way we would want to do business. And now, in our 27th year, it continues to work pretty well. All right, a little further ahead, I will. I'll be skipping. This is a long letter, and I really appreciate when people take that much time to write it up. Marcus is talking in the letter about how he tries to value stocks and how he's evolved his process, and he has a a mathematical equation that wouldn't fit great in an audio medium. But with that said, I want to skip just to the end where he says, "From watching the Motley Fool, I've learned that you can beat the stock market, and the earlier you start, the better." I've also learned that a business can do fantastic things both for the people it employs and for the customers it serves when it's built with humility and purpose-driven. I personally aim to use my time in the RAAF to save and invest as much as I can, whilst building a track record that I can then use to start my own funds management and stock-picking service. Excellent, Marcus. We welcome the competition. To close, my email essay, thank you for bringing The Motley Fool to life. I've grown up in a family of very low financial literacy. So, the work of The Fool has honestly been life-changing in teaching me what it means to take control of my finances, my future, and how I can help others around me do the same. Yours foolishly, Marcus Rose. Well, Marcus, that was a delight to share. It's the sort of thing I'd want to be part of any Motley Fool podcast, to hear directly from a real person who's much younger than I am, which always makes me happy, because it means you have so many decades ahead of you to invest and invest well. And to think that you came from a place of low financial literacy, and by hook or by crook, Found this foolishness here in the ether makes me really happy. And to see what a great head you have on your shoulders, I'm sure you're serving your Air Force really well. I can see you're going to serve humanity well upon transitioning out. Looks like you're headed into the financial arena. We welcome that. The more good people, the better this world will be. It'll be smarter, happier, and richer. Thanks to you, Marcus Rose. Thanks for the note. This next one, mailbag item number two. Let's go to the world of baseball. Thanks, Vince Granieri, for this note. His Screen name at fool.com is Fool4Z Tribe. That means he's a Cleveland Indians fan. Let's see what you have for us, Vince. David, as my Fool ID, Fool4Z Tribe suggests I'm a baseball fan, specifically a Cleveland Indians fan. Although I listen intently to each and every Rule Breaker podcast, my ears pricked up when you closed your recent Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, Something Blue podcast with lessons from this year's baseball postseason, as my team has also suffered many an ignominious defeat at the hands of the hated and vaunted Yankees. I felt your pain as you watched the Twins' glorious season go up in flames after only three postseason games. Your point was, how could your Twins, who matched the Yankees, who were their equal in the regular season, fare so poorly against them in the postseason. Alas, fellow fool, just as in the investment world we love and depend upon, things aren't always as they seem. Look at their records, you cried. 101 victories versus 103. That's true, the Twins won 101 games and the Yankees won 103. Looked like almost a rounding error in terms of their similarity. Clearly, the two are nearly identical, Vince goes on somewhat sarcastically, as we'll shortly find out. On the surface, yes, but while the Twins' road record and power surge were impressive, they did not define excellence in a season where more home runs were hit than any other season in history. One need only compare the Yankees and Twins in games against worthy opponents, those who won more than they lost, to see that the Yankees in those games were an impressive 43 wins 32 losses, while the Twins were a paltry 32 wins, 37 
losses. With the unbalanced schedule, Vince goes on, the Twins, whose division boasted, question mark, sarcasm, two teams with over 100 losses, including one with the worst record in all of baseball and another with nearly 90 losses, Twins played a much easier schedule than the Yankees. So, respectfully, I suggest the investing takeaway from your Twins this season is that it's not enough to look on the surface if you want investing success. You need to take a deeper dive and, like the fools of old, see what others do not or will not see. Thanks for all you and Tom have done to help us all achieve capital F foolishness, Vince Granieri. Vince, guilty as charged. You're right, I did not double-click down. I like that you're referencing the team's one-loss records against teams of note, worthy teams, that is, teams that were winning teams. And you're right, the Yankees did distinguish themselves in those games, and the Twins did not. So, that makes sense to me. I'll still point out, in closing, that the postseason is always going to be a limited sample size, just a few games, almost anything could happen. I still object to the idea that we only typically remember the postseasons and we forget the 162-game regular seasons, but I think I already talked about that in another podcast. Thank you, Vince Granieri. Fool on. All right, Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag Item number 3. And, oh my gosh, is this my friend Tracy Dahl in the studio? I'm back. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a delight, Tracy. And I do remember last month we were speaking to the disappointment of removing the scorecard tool as part of a Motley Fool member experience. I thought you did a wonderful job with that. I did reflect with you at that time that I'd had you on the show a couple of times, often speaking to kind of member questions slash grievances. And I thought Tracy is such a wonderful, intelligent, well-spoken, positive person. The only times I've ever had her on Rule Breaker Investing is to speak to the pain. So, I said, I think, Tracy, either on air or off, I said, come back next month and let's actually just talk about fun stuff. That is so great. I don't always want to play the heavy, so thank you. Absolutely. But you you do it so authentically, which is a compliment from me, um, and you did it so well. But we're going to go a different direction this month. So, Rule Breaker Mailbag Item number three. Well, it started with me saying, Tracy, bring something fun to talk about next month. And you've done that. But just before we get to that, I do have a mailbag entry that feels relevant. So, let me just share that with you, and then we'll go forward. So, this one comes from Kyle Vector. I hope I pronounced that right. Kyle, Dave, thanks for all you do. Love listening to the show. Have learned so much in just a few months of listening. Well, thank you, Kyle. Just wanted to give everyone a heads up on what a great tool the Google spreadsheet is that you recommended on one of your podcasts. Brian Withers deserves a raise promotion, or at least a proverbial feather in his cap for the work he did on that. It's not a perfect substitute for the old scorecard, but in many ways, I like it better, since I can copy and paste large blocks of info, like transactions at a time, which made initial setup, and I love this, Kyle, you know I love this, quotes, super easy. Sorry, you're right. That word does weaken that statement. He says, thank you, Kyle. So, keep up the good work over there. You have surrounded yourself with some competent and helpful people. And Tracy, I'm looking you in the eye right now thinking, you're one of those competent, helpful people that we surround ourselves with here at The Fool. Oh, thank you so much. But I do want to point out that we have competent and helpful members because Brian is actually a member who cares so much about investors helping other investors that he created that for his use and everybody else. So, I I would love to give him a raise, but first we'd have to hire him. (laughs) Brian has come to a number of our member events. So, sometimes once you get to know someone over years, you start thinking, is that guy working here? But turns out he's not. But thank you, Brian, because that's a wonderful creation. A great example of the Motley Fool community stepping forward, even sometimes when the Motley Fool doesn't have the best 
answer. And so, Tracy, I just wanted to start it with that because you were the one who referenced Brian's spreadsheet because we said, hey, while we're taking something back, the old scorecard tool, let's put something forward, a solution people can use. Apparently, Kyle likes this. In some ways, maybe better than what we had. So, thank you for sharing that a month ago, Tracy. But now it's November. It's a whole new month. Tracy, what's something that members might get excited about? The tech team has spent the past several months working on a revamped version of our company pages, and I am really jazzed about them. We had seen in the past, when people visited company pages, they would scroll down and look at the price chart immediately. And and I don't know if you do the same, David, but when I go to make an investment, I'm reading about an interesting company on Stock Advisor, and then I go to Yahoo Finance and I look at the stock chart. And I don't really care what the price is that day, but I want to see a general up and to the right trend over the course of that company's lifetime. And we knew that that chart was a really popular feature on our company mm. pages. We wanted to pull that up and feature it more prominently on our company pages. And I'll take a step back and say, company pages are those pages you can access when you click on the ticker. Right. In so any I'm a stock advisor, like I'm a stock advisor, Rule Breakers member, and maybe I'm on the scorecard, the performance screen, and I just see M E L I, and that's Mercado Libre's ticker symbol, and I press that link, tap it on my phone, click it on my mouse, and I'm on the Mercado Libre company page. That's right. And this is the page that we spent a while revising. Um, And I I think it's tremendous. So, right up top now, you're going to see the price chart, which you can manipulate uh, based on the time frame you want to look at. You can overlay S&P 500, which is super cool. But the thing that makes... Super cool, Tracy, or just cool? You know, I think that that might be an inside joke I'm not privy to. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm going to sidestep that. You missed that, that podcast. Sorry. Keep going. You're, you're amazing. Okay. It's cool. And... cool Doesn't cool stand enough on its own? It should. Just to say something is cool. That seems more special than super cool. So, this seems to be a beef with you. I'll share my beef. Mine is laser focused. I don't really like laser. You're just focused, okay? It doesn't have to be like a laser. However, the thing that makes the price chart on the Motley Fool's company page stand out as a foolish company chart is that we have overlaid the date we made recommendations about that company. And I really do like that. It's fun to see those colored dots of when one of us picked that stock right there on the stock chart. Absolutely. Our hope was that people would come to this page if they're trying to do further research on a company. They're undecided whether they want to buy it. They come here and they see, here's the price chart. Oh, look, the fool has a history with calling this out. And look how well that history has gone. Or in some cases, yikes. Look how poorly David picked that stock. Yeah, they're not all winners, but most of them are. So, that's a feature I'm really excited about. And there are other things on the company page that are new additions as well. If you scroll all the way to the very bottom, now you can get access to conference call transcripts, which is wonderful. This is a great resource if you want to do some primary level research on your own. Uh, We also have information about the number of full services that recommend that company. We don't Give away all, you know, the cat's not totally out of the bag. We don't tell you which services they are. but Unless for, you have those services. Uh, yes. So, there is a list of the services that you have access mm-hmm. to because the page is personalized based on your login information. Awesome. So, you can see which of your services has recommended it. But we also just tell you overall which services have recommended that particular company, and also how many fools have favorited that company, which is kind of a cool social proof way to see if... 
you're you're in the herd or yeah. if you have an undiscovered hidden gem on your own. Yeah. And David, we also brought in uh, a new metric. We are now expressing the number of people who think that the company will outperform the market, which comes directly from your beloved caps game. We're expressing that as a percentage now, whereas before it had just been out of five stars. So we think this is all really fun, proprietary, foolish information that you're not going to find on a Yahoo Finance. So I don't have to go there anymore. That's great, Tracy. And am I right? Am I intuiting correctly that we're probably not done with the status quo? Maybe we're always thinking about what more to add or subtract whatever improves the page? Absolutely. One thing that I would love to do is give people the capability right on this page to vote whether they think this company will outperform the market. I know you have ideas about what else could go on this page. This is just just the beginning, but it was long overdue for an overhaul, and I'm so glad that the tech team got around to doing this. Thank you, Tracy, and I believe that you're the one who's leading this charge. Am I right? I am the business owner for the tech team, so I have zero coding skills, but I applaud them. And I actually wanted to take a moment to shout out to Greg, Swetha, Eileen, Neil, Ruben, Burke, Emeka, Chris, and Dave. They've just been incredible. I've been working with this team for nine months, and they're getting a lot of stuff done. Right. So, occasionally, we'll pull something off the site if it's not functioning up to standard. But mainly, we've got an entire team dedicated to improving, I hope constantly, the user experience with each of our services. Of course, I spend most of my time at Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, but this is true of all of our company pages across all of our services. Tracy, on this special week of thanks, thank you for your leadership. Thanks for letting me be here. It's a great company. And before we get to Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number four. Average eight hours of sleep per night? Check. Eat a quality plant-based diet? Good on you. Check. Exercise four or more times per week? I wish I could check that, but for you, check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure you live a long life. Isn't it time you be financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Well, if you're a runner or a cyclist or you're into CrossFit, or another type of athlete, even a committed weekend warrior. If you're a vegetarian or vegan, then you deserve to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. Introducing Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. Health insurance is a great resource to have for so many families, including my own, to see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash fool to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. That's healthiq.com slash fool. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number four. It's time to do a little bit of financial planning and wealth management, a little bit of career planning. In fact, I've got two mailbag items queued up for my next guest, return full guest on this show, Megan Brinsfield. Megan, so good to have you with us. Thanks, David. Megan, you're the Director of Financial Planning at Motley Fool Wealth Management? That's right, a sister company of The Motley Fool. Excellent. I'm really glad that you're taking the time today to share some of your insights and wisdom uh, with some fools. And I've got two for you, as I mentioned, Megan. The first one comes from Derek Main, writing from Clemson University. So, um, I will mention, again, that I went to the University of North Carolina. We're not quite as good as Clemson in football. We're better than Clemson in basketball. We're about to get to basketball season very shortly. But no, Derek, thank you so much for writing in. I love this note. So, Mr. Gardner, by the way, I'm not Mr. Gardner. I'm just 
I'm Dave. You can call me a fool, but thank you, Derek. I am 20 years old, he says, and currently attending Clemson University. I began playing around and learning with an investment account when I turned 18 with money I could afford to lose. Well, that sounds awesome to me, and I don't know how that happened, Derek, whether you got that from parents or whether you earned it yourself, but good on you. He continues, I am a financial management major, and I've gotten started in my investment analysis class. As a requirement for this class, we are reading the Molly Fool Million Dollar Portfolio book. Reading the book and attending this class has gotten me, quotes, all in on the Motley Fool. Well, I am delighted. That must have been Tom's chapter you encountered. I don't think I really distinguished myself very much in Motley Fool Million Dollar Portfolio. It was, it was a fun book to write, but I bet you found some of Tom's great stuff, and it inspired you, Derek, and this makes me really happy. You go on, my question is, I have officially decided, I'm going to start turning to Megan here, I have officially decided to emphasize in financial planning with my major, and I'm looking for advice on next steps in a financial advisor slash financial planning slash wealth management career. P.S. I love the show. Listen to RBI along with all the other podcasts every day. Thank you for being an inspiration, Derek Maine. Well, I'm excited to hear that Derek has an interest in this career path because it's one that is so flexible. Uh, I think there are a lot of on-ramps to becoming a financial advisor, financial coach, financial planner. There's just a world of opportunity. Um, And even more than that, he's in one of the programs that is teeing people up for this career path. Sounds like it. Even in recent history, 10 years ago, you didn't see as many financial planning type uh, emphasis or concentrations in college. And so this is a really growing and broadening field. So I think that the the first thing that he's done is get some real world experience, even for himself, through investing his own account, seeing that he still likes it, it's still interesting, um, and then going a step further and getting that formal education. So in preparation for this mailbag, one of the things I did was look up, you know, if someone wants to become a certified financial planner, what are the requirements? Um, And there's an education requirement, a test, and then there's an experience requirement as well. Mm. And that experience requirement is so important. It, It is either two years of what they call the apprenticeship model or three years of supporting the financial planning process. And that three years is a little bit easier to meet in terms of the exact um, content of the work that you're doing, um, but takes a little bit longer to achieve. But the great thing is there are so many opportunities to get that experience. You could go try your hand at uh, working in insurance. You could work at um, an investment advisor like Full Wealth. Um, You could work at a place that focuses on financial planning. You could work at a place that does retirement plans for people. Mm. So there are all these, even working at a bank, you you start seeing how financial products interact with people's lives. And that type of experience is really valuable. That's great, Megan. And obviously, because I'm speaking to somebody who has a degree in that area, and I'm just an English major, what was your own route? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm one of those people that took kind of a, a side ramp. So I majored in accounting. I got a master's degree in accounting. And then I worked in accounting for five, some might say eight years, depending on how you quantify those th- three years, uh-huh. um, before fully transitioning into financial planning. And I think that was a great, um, you know, looking back, it was a great path because I was able to get some formal training and accounting and the um, 
one of the things that we talk about now in the financial planning community is that the career path is so hard. It's easy to get in, and it's easy to kind of once you have uh, reach a critical mass of experience to really excel, maybe start your own firm, things like that. But the levels in between are a little bit harder because mm. there's not um, an ingrained model of moving up unless other people are moving out of their roles. And right now you have something like more uh, financial planners over the age of 70 than under the age of 30. Wow. So people aren't getting out of those senior roles um, enough for people to grow and fill them in. And so that's a key challenge in financial planning. So if you can take one of those sort of alternative routes, you might be able to reach a senior level at a faster rate. Mm. Now, I know your own expertise among many, probably, Megan, but taxes, yes. right? Yeah. Is that something that you decided later on in your career, or was that early days as an accountant? Early days as an accountant, okay. yeah, if you can believe it. All right, so Derek, I hope that's helped, and it's come from somebody that I've gotten to know through Motley Fool Wealth Management, something that we at The Motley Fool didn't even imagine 10 or 15 years ago we would even have at the company. This is a sister company of ours today, but I'm really delighted to have people like Megan on that company's Team Now, Megan, I, I don't want to quite let this one go without maybe one extra bit of advice just for this college, maybe junior or senior. What's just good, generalized advice for somebody like Derek Maine? I think uh, whether it's Derek or someone like Derek out there who wants to get into the financial planning world, one of the great things that the CFP board in particular has developed is a mentorship program. So you don't have to be a CFP or even um, you know far down the CFP path. A certified financial planner. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly, to request a mentor. So this is just a group of people that have raised their hands to say, we want to get more people in this profession. Awesome. I mean, that was far more responsible and directed than I was thinking. I was just going to say, make sure you skydive at some point yeah. before graduating, Derek. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Megan. And Rule Breaker Mailbag item number five. This one comes from Luke Scipioni. I'm 28 years old. Luke writes, I've been a fool for almost three years now. I love all the 20-somethings that are writing into our podcast and have clearly been inspired to take positive steps in their financial lives, all from different places and all at different stages. This is awesome. So, Luke, you go on. I read The Motley Fool Investment Guide in 2017. I'm much more aware of my own saving and investing habits. Utilizing the lessons I learned in the book, I was able to eliminate nearly all of my debt. That is great. That's the hardest thing to do, by the way. It's much harder to get rid of our debt and actually save your first real dollar than it is to invest, I think. Anyway, you've already done that part, Luke, and begin investing. The book opened my eyes to the power of consistency and compounding interest. I had a question regarding saving money for graduate school. Luke goes on, I have two years remaining in the U.S. Army. I currently have little problem maxing out my thrift savings plan, the TSP, and my Roth IRA each year with my current salary and a military bonus. My wife stays at home with our one-year-old currently. My time in the military is coming to an end, as I'll be seeking a degree in nursing anesthesia in 2022. My wife is a nurse who will resume working while I attend school. We will likely accrue $60,000 in debt during my three years of school. That sounds like about average kind of student debt that people are graduating with these days. Anyway, good news here, because Luke goes on, I have little doubt I will pay the loans off with my salary after school, but with two years remaining in the military, would continuing to max out those accounts be more beneficial than attempting to save and chip away at the cost of school? Any thoughts you have? I think he thought he was talking to me, but I'm pretty sure I'd much rather hear Megan's thoughts than mine. Any thoughts, Megan, that you have would be greatly appreciated. Full on. Captain Luke Scipioni, 
U.S. Army. Well, first, I want to say thank you to Luke and his wife for their service in their respective fields. That's um, a great uh, burden to take on, and I, I for one, am appreciative. Um, and further, you know, getting even more education to additionally help beyond those years of service in the Army is a great step. Um, related to that debt, I, to me, is actually a really reasonable amount of debt considering the um, end goal of the profession and knowing that that's a relatively lucrative field to enter. Um, and so when I was first considering this question, you know, one of the things that I go back to is a rule of compounding, which is don't interrupt it unnecessarily. Um, so there are two good things going for Luke, which I hear in his story. One is that he's been contributing to his TSP consistently. And so he has a balance there built up that can compound going forward. Um, and then the second is he's already assessed his job prospects from this potential career change mm. and assessed that he has the means or will in the future to pay off those loans going forward. Um, so then it comes back to, is this a worthwhile reason to interrupt this compounding adventure that's going on inside mm -hmm. both his TSP and Roth? Um, and one thing that I think is important to consider is going through the whole financial aid process. So financial aid applications assume that you are going to put a portion of your income and a portion of your assets towards paying for college. Now, retirement assets are not included in that asset base that you're expected to contribute, but the retirement contributions that you're making from your income are considered, you know, as a portion of your overall income. So there's that formula at play. Um, and then the other thing is the availability of subsidized loans. So I know when I went through school, you go through the application process, mm -hmm. and you might not get grants to outright pay for your college education, but a lot of the loans that you can get can be subsidized while you're in school. So if that's the case, there's really no benefit to paying out of pocket versus waiting until you get out of school and have to pay mm -hmm. those loan balances off. So one of the things that I would suggest is maybe doing a 50-50 approach. So knowing that the, the TSP um, limits right now are um, about to go up, so roughly $19,000 a year plus another six for... That's how much you can contribute? Yes. Wow. Yeah, so you can put in about $25,000 a year. So if he's already maxing that out, if he stopped contributing for two years, he'd almost be able to pay for the full balance of that anticipated college expense. Mm -hmm. I would actually just split the difference and say, I'm going to reduce my uh, contributions by half to the TSP and the Roth, and then put the other half towards paying down those eventual loans, knowing that you might get some subsidized help later on. Wonderful. Now, Megan would be the first to say that everybody's situation is different, so obviously we hope that that feels right to you, Luke. I'm always a big fan of the, it's not black or white, it's gray. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not on or off or one or zero, it's it's right in the middle sometimes. And so, I, I kind of love the 50-50 approach to life when it makes sense here. It sounds like it does here to you, Megan. Thank you very much. And Luke, thanks for writing in. Hope that's helpful. All right, Megan, thanks for hanging out with me this month. Yeah, I appreciate the invite. All right, Rule Breaker, mailbag item number six. This one says, hello, David and Rick. Rick, I'm delighted that you've been included. I hope the question's not for me. I would love for you to weigh in here. In fact, I'm going to insist because our friend Paul Essen, Paul is a former Motley Fool employee, and he's the one writing this note, so he probably knows you, Rick. So, 
at the end of my answer, you need to give some kind of a shout out or something for Paul. I will do my best. I remember Paul. Absolutely. Paul's a good friend and an avid follower of the stock market. And here's the question from Paul Essen. Hello, David and Rick. I was wondering if you could speak a little about the difference between penny stocks and microcaps. Is there a clear line between the two, or is it more subjective? Paul goes on, I own shares in what I consider to be a legitimate company with a product that sells, that earns millions of dollars in revenue, and is increasing revenue year over year. At the same time it trades over the counter, it has a sub $2 stock price and has a market cap of under $200 million. In fact, my broker recently wouldn't let me buy more shares in the company because I believe they think it's a penny stock. I'm wondering if there are any metrics or red flags that you look for to determine the difference between a penny stock and a microcap. Is it solely a matter of perspective? Thanks, Paul Essen. Well, I will give a few hard and fast figures here, Paul, but I think it's still more a matter, a subjective matter, as you kind of hinted toward the end. I'll mention that technically, assuming Investopedia is a legitimate financial source, which I have regarded it as such for years and years, technically, Investopedia says that microcap stocks are between $50 and $300 million of market cap. Now, everybody who listens to Rule Breaker Investing knows what market cap is. Even if you're new listening, everybody, right? I can't imagine anybody would not know what market cap is. But in case you don't, we do play a game show. We're going to do that in December. Every quarter, we play the market cap game show on this on this podcast. But you just take the number of shares of a company and multiply it by the share price, and that's the value of the stock taken all together. We say that's the market cap. So if a company is somewhere between fifty and three hundred million dollars, that's a micro cap. Above that are small caps, and that's going to be I'm making this up because I'm not looking at Investopedia right now. But that's going to be like three hundred million up to. Let's go with. Three billion, and then mid caps are going to be like three billion. I'm making these numbers up to twenty billion, and then large caps are above twenty billion, and maybe mega caps are above a hundred billion. So this is a taxonomy. There's no exact science here. Usually there is around real taxonomy, and even market caps shift over the course of time. So when I was the age of some of our correspondents this week, if I were in my twenties back then, certainly these numbers were all smaller. So you have to keep like an accordion, expanding and sometimes contracting them with the Market overall, but there's kind of a micro cap standard for you, Paul. So, so what's a penny stock? Well, I'd say anything under fifty million dollars. But even companies with smaller than one hundred million dollar market caps, I would have some questions about. I am open to the idea, Paul, that you have found a good stock, even though it's trading below two dollars and has a low market cap. Sounds like you've done your homework. In some ways, my answer is a penny stock is anything that you don't really know much about couldn't name the CEO and have questions about whether they have revenue or not. So it's kind of a subjective answer. Clearly, Paul, you're looking at a micro cap because it sounds like you've done your homework here. I will mention that to be a Nasdaq stock, you're required to have a share price of $4 or higher. If not, consistently, then you're going to be put on the over-the-counter, which means you don't merit inclusion on the Nasdaq, let alone the New York Stock Exchange. So there's another number for you, $4 per share. I would just say a penny stock is where pennies count. Like if your stock went up 10 cents today, let's say from a buck 37 to a buck 47, and that's a 7% move and that feels exciting. 7% moves don't happen every day 
unless we're talking about dollar thirty-seven cent stocks, then that would be a penny stock. So if pennies count, if you're counting the pennies and saying that's a big move, I would call that a penny stock. And as I think you know, Paul, and I know most of my listeners know, we spend zero time following penny stocks. We think most people will lose most, if not all, of their money investing in penny stocks. These are companies that are rinky-dink. Often they have questionable business models. Sometimes really questionable governance, uh, and sometimes the promoters of penny stocks are even less principled than some of the companies themselves. I don't want to tar and feather the entire sub-microcap ecosystem, but with all that said, we spend zero time looking at penny stocks, and I don't spend a lot of my time on microcaps. I will be speaking at the Microcap Summit next year. Ian Cassell, for those who know his work on the internet, on Twitter, I know some are big fans. I'm certainly a fan of Ian. He loves microcaps, and I understand the allure. Find something early stage, really small, and ride it to riches over the course of five or ten years. But at least in my experience, that doesn't happen very often with companies that have such small market caps. Usually, our best rule breakers, like the stocks that are the zeitgeist of their age, Amazon, Netflix, etc., they were never micro caps. They all started as IPOs, probably as mid caps, and rose to become mega caps. So that's been my route to fortune and what I've talked about for four plus years on this podcast and certainly 20 plus years at fool.com. So we spend zero time on petty stocks, not a lot on micro caps because I always ask if the capitalization is that small, if the company is worth that little, is this really going to be a stock that you and I think we can buy and hold for five plus years as it becomes a world beater? Often not. All that said, Paul, I'm the first to say, have some fun with it. I wouldn't put a lot in a stock under $2 a share, but I once bought a penny stock when I was 18 years old just to see how it would feel. That stock, back then, stocks were traded in fractions. Interlab Robotics, which had apparently landed a robot contract with China. And yes, this is the 1980s. Was it 17.30 seconds? It briefly trended up to 19.30 seconds. You can imagine my 18-year-old excitement up two thirty seconds from 17 to 19. That was a nice 10% move before it vanished altogether. With my money along with it, Interlab Robotics, a classic penny stock. But you know what? I scratched that itch. I was a young guy. It wasn't a lot of money. So, I'm the first to say, speculating a little bit all the time and whatever that means for you makes sense to me, but certainly not a lot of it. Just a little bit. So, that's my take. But, Rick Engdahl, I asked you at the start, to provide some value to our friend Paul, what do you want to add, subtract, or multiply? I have a great investing mentor who taught me that um, share prices are irrelevant. I don't buy stocks, I buy companies. Yeah, Rick, you're right. Don't pay too much attention to the stock price. Look at the overall market cap. And don't fret too much about where the market cap is today. Think forward three to five years. So, yeah, I appreciate that. I hope that was helpful, Paul. Thanks for the question. All right, six rule breaker mailbag items down and three to go. But first, Quip. Makers of the Quip electric toothbrush want you to know the one single discovery that matters most for your dental care. It's simply this, that if you have good habits, you're good. That means brushing for two minutes, twice a day, and flossing regularly. Quip makes that simple. Their electric toothbrush has sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to guide a full and even clean. Plus, Quip delivers fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months with free shipping. Good habits often begin with things that we do to take care of ourselves and our appearance in the world around us. 
course, we talk all the time about good financial habits on all Motley Fool podcasts. Well, having Quip can help you with decluttering your sink or your cabinet. It makes traveling with an electric toothbrush easier. Plus, there are no wires. There's not a clunky charger here. It runs for three months on a single charge. Join over three million healthy mouths and get Quip, Q-U-I-P, today, starting at $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash fool right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash fool. It's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash fool. Quip, the good habits company. Rule Breaker mailbag item number seven. This one goes to my love of games. So, this comes from Andrew from Buzz City Games in Concord, North Carolina. Andrew writes, Hi, David. I've been catching up on Rule Breaker Investing. In a few episodes, I will have listened to all episodes across all five podcasts. Wow! And recently heard about you selling or returning a Beta Pearl. Now, this is referring to the game Magic the Gathering. Now, that is a rather obscure reference for many listening right now, but if you're a Magic the Gathering player, you may remember we had Richard Garfield, who invented Magic the Gathering on the podcast a year or so ago. Anyway, that's a specially valuable card from Magic, Beta Pearl. Andrew goes on, I own and operate a foolish, friendly local game store in Concord, North Carolina, Buzz City Games. I've played Magic for 26 years, judged for 10, owned or operated a friendly local game store for 10 years as well. Andrew goes on, I wanted to reach out and offer up my services for your employees. I would be happy to come up to Full HQ and sit down with anyone that wants to dust off their magic collections and bring them in. I would offer general information, advice, recommendations, education on current market values, how to find them, or just generally talk magic or games. Love to catch a taping of some podcasts while there and help out in any way that I can. Well, I'll call it right there and give you two additional facts for my listeners. The first is that Andrew is a fellow Tar Heel, class of 2006, so love to hear that. The second is, Andrew is sitting to my right on this podcast with his brother, Sean, right next to them. Andrew and Sean Weston, great to have you here on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Yeah, I mean, so people write us mailbag notes, and then sometimes they come and visit, especially when they make a wonderful offer. That was so much fun. So, we spent some time this afternoon just Dusting off some old magic cards. I had some. My producer Rick Engdahl, also a fellow player, had some. Rick, you had one particular card that Andrew told you was worth ballpark what? I don't know. What was it like? Four hundred, five hundred, something. Four or five hundred dollars. Yeah. Wow. Just Pretty one impressive. of the cards. Just something forgotten in my basement for who knows how long. Amazing. So again, I know most listeners of Rule Breaker Investing probably have never played Magic: The Gathering, but probably have heard of it because. In contrast to what many people might think, it's a much bigger game today than when it first made its splash on the front of some magazines back in the 1990s. So, and I'm not just talking about gaming magazines. It was a phenomenon. But indeed, Andrew and Sean, this is a pretty big business today, Magic the Gathering. Absolutely. I'll uh, jump in there and say that there were a couple cards that I finally found the value for out of your collection, or at least sealed product. And uh, you had three particular items that were worth about 25000 each. Okay, that is astonishing, and I'm going to be driving back home very carefully and uh, taking those out of my home and putting them, I don't know, in a bank vault or something. But yeah, so it turns out just kind of like stocks, guys, buying and holding, sometimes buying and forgetting really can work. Absolutely. So I think a lot of people listening for the first time hearing about, they might have heard about magic before, but don't realize like how could a card 
be worth so much money when it's just a card in a game? Well, of course, you have the supply and demand. There aren't any more being made of that particular variety. And there's a lot of demand for it as millions and millions of Magic players join up every year. In addition, there are tournaments throughout the U.S. and the world that offer cash prizes. So you can win $40,000 in a weekend by having the best deck. And if you get some of those better cards, the probability of your deck winning, we're all about numbers here, mm. uh, could increase your odds of getting that money. That is remarkable. So, turns out all these cards and games that we've been collecting sometimes, if you find the right ones and hold them long enough, you can do pretty well. So, anyway, obviously it was exciting for us to have you, Andrew. And we had a number of Magic fans around the table earlier in a conference room at Full HQ. Now, Andrew, you're the one who's been speaking primarily. First, you are the one who wrote me this wonderful note and then took the initiative to come up from Concord, North Carolina, from your store, Buzz City Games, to spend time with us today. But you've got somebody close to you sitting just to your right. I mentioned him earlier, Sean. Am I right, Sean, that you're the one who kind of brought Andrew into the foolish fold? Yeah, well, in addition to teaching him everything he knows about magic, um, I also... Older brother speak. I love it, of course. Um, I started listening to the Foolish podcast, and when you started RBI uh, podcast. July I, of 2015. Yes, I you know, was there for the first episode, and I just knew that that was something that he would really enjoy, and so we've been listening ever since. Did you guys, were you raised in a family where there was talk about the stock market? Most people weren't. No, not at all. No, I saw it in the paper occasionally, but no, we didn't start investing until I was probably in my 20s. And Sean, what do you do these days? I know what Andrew does. He runs Buzz City Games in Concord, North Carolina. By the way, if it's not already evident that we're plugging this game store, <laughs> buzzcitygames.com, this is a fellow Tar Heel who took the time to drive up from Concord to assess our Magic the Gathering cards today. But Sean, tell me a little bit about your life. I'm an automation engineer, so I am a developer and I help to optimize other developers and the development process. And in what industry? Uh, I currently work in the gaming industry. I've worked in the financial industry at a hedge fund as well. Um, but I do the same type of development work behind the scenes. So the end product really doesn't matter. Understood. So when you talk about optimization, are you talking about writing code yourself or are you kind of directing programmers to be more efficient themselves? Or so I, both? I write, well, both, but I write code that uh, creates tools that helps them be more efficient, but also we manage the overall process of software delivery uh, to minimize mistakes and uh, minimize the amount of uncreative work that developers spend. That is, time on. that is awesome. At what point in your life did you realize this was your calling? So I started programming on my TI-81 calculator in <laughs> high school calculus class so awesome. that I could optimize my homework um, and finish homework faster. Wow. Yeah. You were one of those really, really bright people that uh, got better grades than I did over calculators. <laughs> that that's what. And Sean, you mentioned obviously the video game industry where you're doing it now. It sounds like the kind of work you're doing, as you mentioned earlier, could be applied to finance just as well as gaming. But we're all gamers. What game or game property have you been working with over the last year or so? I work on the World of Tanks franchise. Awesome. I have to admit, I know Magic better than the World of Tanks franchise. But can you like give me the thirty second pitch for World of Tanks? Uh, it's a massive. Uh, online multiplayer game. It's free to play. Um, we try to be pretty historically accurate. Um, there are a lot of uh, tank versions that uh, our team goes out throughout the world and actually mics them up um, and gets the actual sounds from those particular models. Wonderful. I love it. I love your industry, and thanks for that good work. Let me Before I let you guys go, how about your favorite company or stock? Probably public, if it were a stock, but maybe you have a company that you like a lot. Start with Sean. 
Uh, my favorite's Mercado Libre. Uh, I lived in South America for a couple of years, and it's great to see what they're doing to bring the uh, optimization and uh, delivery infrastructure that we ha- enjoy in the U.S. to South America. Yeah. In fact, earlier, Sean, I think you were saying while we were standing around at Magic Cards, you were saying you were kind of wandering around South America at that time, going, you know, at some point somebody should do like the e-commerce thing here, <laughs> and so maybe you even dreamed it up before Marcos Galvarin did with his, I think it was his Stanford research paper or whatever. But it's one of those stocks, right, where you were like already thought, intuited what they should be doing, and then somebody went out and did it. Exactly, and that's you know one of the things that I really enjoy about the service that the Fool provides is you really get in depth. Um, into the the heart of these great businesses. Thank you very much. What about you, Andrew? Uh, well, I would say that was probably my favorite as well, but because he took it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with Tesla. Um, and and I'm not. It's not my favorite because of the long term stock price. It's just the most fun and, and dramatic to watch, um, uh, and, and what they're doing uh, for the world. So they have a, a very big dream, and uh, I'm cheering for them. To help make that dream reality. Wonderful. And last question for you guys. I know you're both gamers. Um, one of you has his own game store, BuzzCityGames.com, on the internet. The other, World of Tanks. I think I need to learn that game. But since we're talking, we've talked some today about Magic, and Magic is owned by Wizards of the Coast, which is itself owned by Hasbro. So this has been a long-term, successful Motley Fool stock advisor pick for us. Buy, sell, or hold, Andrew Hasbro. Uh, for everyone else, I would say it's a big buy. Um, I am already in that world, so I don't want to put all my eggs in the same basket. Uh. But uh, Wizards of the Coast at this point is legally printing money. Um, Magic is growing so much. And then they, I think they just had a, a small downturn in their stock price. Great opportunity to buy. I'm definitely a buy on Hasbro. All right. Well, Andrew, one entrepreneur to another, one gamer to another. Have I plugged it enough? BuzzCityGames.com and Concord, North Carolina. A great time of year, by the way, to find a good gift. But if I'm not anywhere near Concord, North Carolina, true of many of our listeners, but I were to go to your website, what does the miracle of e-commerce do for me as an online customer of yours? What do you specialize in? So at BuzzCityGames.com, you can reach out and locate up to one of the 12,000 different Magic Cards that exist today mm. um, and, and buy them and have them in your house in the next day or two. You can also get educated. That's the, the biggest thing is I came up here to educate on magic finance. And if you have an old magic collection or any kind of collectible, get a couple different opinions before you do anything with it. Um, education there is the most important, but uh, also have fun. So play more games and uh, reach out if you want any board games or board game advice or anything at all. BuzzCityGames.com. Excellent. Andrew Weston, Sean Weston, thanks for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you for what you do, and thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number eight, home stretch here, and out with the old. Well, those are my new friends from North Carolina. In with the new. Wait, these are my old friends from Alexandria, Virginia, because Kara Chambers and Lee Burbage, you're here. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier, and the mailbag item I'm about to share kind of calls you both out, but. Mainly, I want everybody to know that you're both going to come back in December, and we're going to do our next episode of our Company Culture Tips. You have some new things to share, as you do every nine months or so. So, currently, I'm excited to preview our next Company Culture Tips for December. All right, we'll be ready. Okay, we'll be ready. All right, good. But in the meantime, Matt Rantala wrote in with this note, and he says, Dear David, Kara, and Lee. So, Thank you both for joining me. You're being asked by Matt this. He says, first of all, thank you for the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. 
I always look forward to my weekly dose of upbeat wisdom that the show brings. Well, thank you, Matt. I'm making my way through the show archives, he writes, and have enjoyed the series with Kara and Lee about the foolish culture. I've listened to all five shows in that series multiple times. I have also, based off of David's recommendation, been reading Conscious Capitalism. With these two influences in mind, I've been thinking recently about the organizations I've worked at in recent years and what sort of team I would ideally like to be part of. And while I've drank the TMF's culture Kool-Aid, we call that, of course, the Fool-Aid, I'm not looking to relocate, he writes, from Minnesota or work remotely at this time. So while I'm jonesing to work at The Motley Fool, I don't think it's currently a reasonable pursuit. With that in mind, I wonder if you'd have any recommendations on finding a local organization with a conscious capitalism approach, either explicitly or in essence. Matt does mention, I'm sure you both would want to know, like, what does he do, right? So Matt says he works in a somewhat niche subspace of information technology, Geography Information Systems, Mm -hmm. GIS, that adds spatial capabilities to computer systems' ability to store, analyze, and display data. That feels partly relevant to us, the Mollyville. Maybe we can still get Matt on board with this. I don't know. But he, he says, think Google Maps on steroids hooked into an organization's data that he does admit not many organizations explicitly look for. So when I've been part of a hiring team, I've always leaned towards hiring the candidate with the most long-term potential, even if they didn't necessarily have the best background to step right into a role and fully contribute. Perhaps as a candidate, I should evaluate opportunities more by the overall quality of the organization more than the specifics of a role. I know from experience that often a role transforms to what a person brings to the table. Thanks again for the show. Matt concludes, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on how individuals that want to work within a foolish type of culture can locate those opportunities, Matt Rantala. So this is in some ways a tall order to fill. I did drop a note to the Conscious Capitalism brass saying, hey, is there some database where you can use the Conscious Capitalism website and look up who are the local companies that are into Conscious Capitalism? I will mention before kicking it to Kara that there are chapters of Conscious Capitalism in many cities. So Matt, if you're writing from the Twin Cities, there might be Conscious Capitalism Minneapolis. We certainly have our chapter here in Washington, D.C. that we've started this fall. So whoever you are, wherever you're listening from, you might have a conscious capitalism chapter active in your greater metropolitan area. But aside from that, which, as it turns out, doesn't exist yet, Kara, what are some thoughts you have here for Matt? I mean, I like that you're focusing on looking for a consciously capital company. I think probably a good move would be to kind of get out in your community and and look for maybe smaller founder-run companies where they may not even be articulating conscious capitalism, but you'll be able to know it when you talk with them. And that kind of gets you started and and you're you're kind of a part of helping that company form its values. Um, The other thing I would say is... um, I would develop a set of questions you're asking during the interview process Mm. um, and prioritize that as you're going in. And so um, what kind of conversations do you have about your stakeholders here? And and how do you talk about your customers? What gets rewarded? I think you can suss that out, uh, I think, pretty well if you have the right lens on it. It really sounds like you do. And, you know, higher purpose is the first of the four foundations of conscious capitalism. So does a company that you're thinking about working for articulate well on its website, perhaps, or in its local branding, what you would think of as serving a higher purpose. And by the way, if you know anybody at the company, would they say, yeah, and it's real here. It's not just talk. So another thought there, Lee? 
Yeah, and I think uh, it works on the other side as well. As as a company who um, is doing a lot of hiring, um, we can tell the kind of people that are coming in with questions about our purpose and our values and so forth um, are going to be additive to our, our culture and our company. So I think he's right in thinking about not just about the skills for the job, but um, more about who is this company and what do they stand for. And, and a company like that, um, our experience is looking for candidates who aren't just thinking about the role and so forth. So asking the types of questions that Kara is talking about will help demonstrate that you're the kind of person that would fit well um, at that type of company. Mm. I would also do some research on things like Glassdoor, looking for those best places to work awards. Mm. Um, they're not they're not perfect, but they're at least ways to get a sense of what's being highlighted um, by a company uh, and by its employees when they're thinking about. Um, conscious capitalism. Yeah, a lot of cities have business journals, like we have the Washington Business Journal here in Washington, D.C., and they tend to give out kind of best places to work those lists. And by the way, they come, at least here in Washington, I'm assuming it's true of other cities across the U.S., they come in like smaller company and then medium sized companies and large companies. And mm-hmm. our company has about 400 employees. We're actually considered large at this point. Uh, many companies, you know, have 100 employees. That's kind of medium sized. And then smaller might have five to 10. So sometimes it's what kind of environment are you looking for? But yeah, that's really good advice, Kara. I agree. Glassdoor, of course, we use that for investment research in part, knowing that it's always a small minority of most big companies, employees who bother to rate their company on Glassdoor. And yet we'll take any data we can get. Well, I'll take any great guests that I can get and ask them back on my show just a few weeks from now. Karen Lee, it's a delight to see you both. Happy Thanksgiving this week, and we look forward to seeing you in December. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, and in this week of Thanksgiving, let's close it out with Rule Breaker mailbag item number nine. David, having just finished listening to the old, new, borrowed, and blue volume three podcast, I thought I'd share a little something that made my day even better than that. It made my year. I hope it makes your day as well, writes my new friend Richard Schwartz. Richard says, first a little backdrop, I'm 58. I have two sons, ages 26 and 22. Until about 10 years ago, I never had the disposable income to be investing in individual stocks. My retirement benefits are invested in various mutual funds, but I didn't have much else to invest outside of the retirement plans. And even when I did, I really had no basis for picking individual stocks. I grew up in a rather middle-class home, the youngest of four. My parents never had the income or savings to be able to invest. So, investing in the market and picking individual stocks were really mysteries to me. Nevertheless, as my career and income thankfully advanced, I started investing slowly about 10 years ago by buying stocks of a couple well-known companies, none of which did particularly well. Well, a few years back, I invested in a stock advisor membership, followed shortly thereafter by Rule Breakers, and more recently, the Partnership Portfolio and IPO Trailblazers. These are all Motley Fool procs. Thank you, Mr. Schwartz. And my investing took off. I now have a 96.5% score on the Gardner-Kretzmann Continuum. Quick pause. That means that basically, if Richard is 58 years old, he's got about 55 stocks in his portfolio, which is almost a one-to-one ratio for the much-vaunted Gardner-Kretzmann continuum. But yeah, that feels like a really solid base. It makes me happy to think, whoever you are, whatever your age, if you have about as many stocks as you have years on this earth, if you're dead even, you're at 1, 1.00 on the Gardner-Kretzmann continuum. That makes Gardner and Kretzmann very happy. So, if you're 20 and you have 20 stocks, great job. 58, 
55 stocks. That's really wonderful. That's about where I am as well. Well, continuing on, I've accumulated a healthy little stock portfolio of approximately $500,000 since becoming a fool. Thanks to my following the program and learning to be an investor rather than a trader, my fool returns in my portfolio run at over 30% annualized over the course of my foolish years. Well, that means Mr. Schwartz is probably picking some of my best picks and avoiding some of my losers. Well done, sir. A great result, no doubt, but that pales in comparison to an experience I just had. Having not been an investor when my sons were younger, I tried to make up for that by discussing the market and various companies with them in recent years. Additionally, to give them skin in the game, I put some money aside for each of them, great move, and with some gentle guidance, allowed them to make the choices of what companies their portfolios were invested in. I encouraged them regularly to listen to the Rule Breaker Investing podcast, felt I was having little success, though, in that regard. That is, until this past weekend, when my younger son mentioned in passing that, as a general rule, we should all hold our stocks for twice as long as we normally do. If we normally hold a stock six months, he suggested we be holding it a year. I thought it a valid statement and hoped that he got it as a result of our discussions of the difference between being a trader and being an investor. Well, I religiously listen to the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast and, in fact, usually end my week with it on my Friday evening commute. It's become my ritual. I find it a nice way to ease into the weekend. However, I was in Peru for vacation recently. I highly recommend this country to anyone who hasn't visited yet. Great sights, lovely people. They eat guinea pigs and alpaca and fell behind in my podcast. So, when my son suggested doubling my holding period, I hadn't yet listened to your old, new, borrowed and blue volume three podcast from two weeks ago. But I listened to it this morning and I was blown away when I heard you borrow an adage from your brother Tom to hold stocks twice as long as we would normally be inclined to. Of course, that's great advice, but more importantly, having first heard it from my 22-year-old son, I now know that he's a regular listener to the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast as well, putting him well on his way to becoming a lifelong investor. Am I reading this right? Is this podcast bringing fathers and sons together? He's just out of college. Richard closes, just started a job in IT consulting, so I'm thrilled to have learned that he's listening and absorbing your weekly wisdom. So, with one of two sons converted, the Schwartz Fool Continuum is now 66.7% with hopes of getting it to 100% shortly. Please pass on to your listeners what I've learned, that it's never too late, me, or early, my sons, to start investing. Thanks for what you do. It's truly made a difference in my life. Most importantly, will similarly do so in my son's life as well. Fool on. And Mr. Schwartz signs himself as a partner at a New York City law firm. Well done, sir. And that's the note I want to end on. There's no other way I'd like to close out our Thanksgiving week Rule Breaker Investing podcast mailbag, even though I loved my magic guys and we had fun together. And I really appreciate Tracy Dahl finally getting to share something happy with us. There were so many great moments this week, but I love that closing moment. And once again, how many 20-year-olds did we get to share in this particular mailbag? Those of you who've listened to me for a long time recognize that most of my correspondents are not talking about investing in their 20s, and yet a lot were this week. So, I feel like some combination of the hard work you're doing as parents, combined with the hard work our employees do every day to make the world smarter, happier, and richer, it sounds like it might actually be working. 
full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.